to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. My name is Sam Clements, and this is the podcast that celebrates films with a 90 minute or less runtime. In each episode, a guest will select a film and join me to add to our ongoing fictional film festival. Today, we're joined by Joanna Robinson, cultural writer, podcaster extraordinaire, and co-author of the new book, MCU, colon, The Reign of Marvel. Hello, Joanna. Hello, thank you so much for having me. I am... It would be my honor to program this film that we're going to talk about for a film festival. That would be the dream. I love that. I love that enthusiasm straight out the gate. And yeah, I mean, maybe one day, maybe one day, you know, a version of this film festival will happen and we will get to show these movies on a big screen because uh, that would be a real, a real passion. And you will (laughs) remember that I called dibs on this particular film. Like, it's, it's mine. I get to intro it. Okay, great. You get all of the kudos, all of the, you know, any any badges of honor that are made are coming straight to you. <laughs> um, and it's so nice to have you on, I guess, the you know, the podcast version of this film festival before said screening. It's so nice to be able to talk to you. I, I've been listening to your work uh, for such a long time uh, on, you know, sort of your, your sort of various podcasts you've been on over the years. I, I feel like I'm not truly watching a TV show unless I'm hearing Joanna Robinson talk about the TV show, you know, a few hours afterwards. That's so nice. What a nice thing to say. It's been so you know doing this as long as i've been doing it watching the podcast industry grow and change but it has been so nice to feel like we've built this little like tv club of people who are all watching tv together that's what it feels like when i you know when like listeners follow us from show to show or tell us that they're only watching the show so they can hear us talk about it the ultimate compliment but like which is comes with its own pressure but uh it it just makes me feel like we're a bunch of friends all watching the same shows together and what could be what could be better especially you know in the like last few years and we all felt very like stranded and isolated at home and it's like what better thing to do than all like all watch a show together and talk about it on a podcast via the comments via the emails that we get all that sort of stuff so i love that i feel like some people like to podcast because they like to sort of preach to people and that's not i always like to feel like i'm in conversation with everyone so thank you for listening it means a lot to me a lot to all of us you've just uh, written this beautiful book um all about the history of marvel cinematic university mcu and uh and yeah i don't know i'd love to know a little bit about what your process was like with with writing the book you know did you approach this in a different way to your podcast work I will say for I don't do it as much anymore but for when I was working for Vanity Fair and doing podcasts for them especially like the TV podcast that I started over there still watching I did try to have an interview with every single episode it felt like I wanted to have a more even more journalistic approach I suppose than sort of the cultural commentary approach uh, which I do more of now I would say and so I would say that was hugely influential in getting me into a space where I felt 
really comfortable talking to people about their work process. And that was really helpful for the book because we did over a hundred uh, interviews for the book. And, uh, you know, that was a lot of that was during pandemic. People were at home, people were available uh, to talk, but it was a lot, a lot, a lot of talking to these brilliant people about this incredible you know, the MCU, um, the reign of Marvel Studios is such an indelible moment in our pop cultural history that I, no matter how you feel about Marvel, almost if you care about film or Hollywood or the industry or storytelling or the impact of certain stories on certain generations of people, that oh, roughly 10 year period where Marvel was just dominating everything is important. Like, I don't care if you like the movies or not, it's important. And so um, I think that having that approach of talking to people about their work, which is something I was very familiar doing journalistically at Vanity Fair, and then uh, having spent years loving a lot of the Marvel, I mean, I like, I'm a Marvel fan, but again, I don't think you have to be. But uh, talking about Specifically stories that I love, stories that I know have, will like shape people who grew up with them, who revisit these movies over and over and over again, Endgame or Winter Soldier or whatever your favorite might be. Um, so that was all really interesting to me. And, and like I think that curiosity with all levels, because I've never been a I've never been able to settle down into one spot, I think, in my coverage of this stuff. So I'm interested in like, how did the movie get made? But also, who are the power players? But also, what is the larger storytelling that's in play here? Like all of it kind of interests me. And what we wound up with, because I was fortunate to work with like really brilliant co-authors, Dave Gonzalez, Gavin Edwards, is I think something that, you know, it's not we had so much stuff that honestly we could have written three books. So it's not the longest book you'll ever read, but it feels, I don't know. Tell me if you agree because you've read it or, and, and don't flatter me. You could be honest, but like, it feels kind of comprehensive. Like it feels like it gives you just the full 360. And what I love about it. And again, I, I give a lot of credit to Dave and Gavin for this is that uh, I feel like it's really friendly for people who don't know much at all, but it also has stuff in there that even people who consider themselves experts have told me they didn't know about. So there's something trying to have something for everyone, which is what you want to do in something like this. I think when when you talk to as many people as you do in the book and like the, it's really interesting, actually, for me to hear um, interviews with people who don't always attend the junkets, you know, and do the red carpet sort of stuff. Like, you know, you've really gone under the hood of, um, you know, the Marvel of the movie making business. And, and Marvel is a really good case study because they've been so prolific in the last few years. But I think it's interesting for people who just like cinema and, you know, like the Hollywood kind of movie making industry Yeah. Uh, there. But I feel like even though, you know, like there's, there's I'm sure the book could have been a lot longer with the number of people you, you talk to. But I think you do such a good job. Uh, with your co-authors of condensing all of that information, you know, and it's sort of in the text, even if it isn't literally that person saying the line they may have said in an interview. Th thank you so much for all the nice things you said about our book. We're so excited for people to read it. Um, I think one of our favorite things that we discovered, because we're all we're all film lovers, like films of all type. We are not just Marvel, uh, you know, uh, Marvel heads. And when we sort of cracked this idea that we play with a lot in the book of, of the way that Marvel tried to recreate the old studio system in Hollywood by sort of bringing a lot of uh, the talent in-house or locking actors down for long contracts, like we got to 
lean on our shared knowledge of film history in Hollywood. And and it's so interesting when you – I feel like this happens all the time when people write about the way in which people have innovated things. You know, people think about how Marvel Studios innovated a lot of things. But what really winds up happening, like <laughs> – like when when Uber is like we're oh we've 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 come up with something where there's like a big car and it's gonna make multiple stops and pick everyone up and everyone's like oh that's a bus you've just invented a bus and that's sort of like how I feel about Marvel Studios where they're like we're gonna lock actors down for long contracts we're gonna do this that and the other thing and I'm like oh so you're like you're like RKO <laughs> that's what you are you're like early Warner Brothers like that's what you're doing so um but but I think Kevin Feige who we we. You know, I got to talk to at length, um, who who is you know the the main figurehead at Marvel Studios, um, has said as I found out later after the fact that like he has intentionally referenced the old Hollywood studio system as like something that was an inspiration for their business model. So um, that was really fascinating to write about. So I think it's like they've done a, such a good job of like yeah like kind of educating audiences about actors and like how their kind of careers work like this person signed up to be in marvel films we may expect this character to now pop up in multiple films like people don't normally get so excited about actors contracts but when someone joins the mcu you're like when am i first gonna see this guy right what's going on here And, and it's yeah i think they've made the industry quite newsworthy you know more you know not that it wasn't before but they've really got people into some of that stuff you know who signed on to do what and when right. their contract might kick in will i ever see harry styles in another marvel movie <laughs> i don't know who knows <laughs> yeah Perhaps. will this post credit sting ever yeah. come to fruition <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. will people acknowledge the big hands that's like sticking out of earth now <laughs> <laughs> never never probably never not. <laughs> Uh, when you were when you were working on on the book who was your yeah do you have like a might be hard to choose but do you have a favorite interview or was there you know something that you I guess someone you got to speak to who was just kind of a a, a real uh you know pinch me moment I was grateful for honestly I was grateful for everyone who talked to us because there was a certain we mentioned this in the intro in the book but there was a certain point when when Disney Marvel's parent company decided they didn't want us to write the book and so they started telling everyone not to talk to us and that you know that was a moment where we all questioned like oh should we just throw this book in the bin then if if Disney is going to shut doors on us and so then it became this like a fight and and scrapping not an active fight with Disney and they have since been quite gracious but for a while it was like it was pretty it was pretty tough but once the book was done they were like oh that's you know they're not like mad that it exists but they just like didn't want to help us at all uh in in making it which is fine um but they because you know a couple reasons they Disney is sort of famous for not letting anyone want to know how the sausage gets made. They just don't want anyone to know their secrets. And then they want to be in complete control of what is out there. So there does exist a Marvel coffee table book that they put out themselves, that they produce, that they get all the profits from, that tells a sort of sanitized version of their origin story and their reign. And it's not like our version is out to make them the villain or anything like that, because I don't think they are, but there's just some like human frailties and like other sort of stories that they don't really want out there that we think are instrumental imperative to understand like the full scope of the story that we put in our book. But that didn't answer your question. Your question. I mean, I think sitting in Kevin Feige's office for multiple hours was a delight and a dream 
uh, for me. Uh, what a thrill. Talking to every, uh, my favorite people always to talk to are screenwriters. I find the writers so interesting. Um, and so all the screenwriters who talk to us, um, and they tend to be much more free with what they want to say. And they're so thoughtful. Of course, they've been thinking about these stories for so long. So all of the screenwriters that we got to talk to, and I will say the people who are most willing and ready and eager to talk to us were everyone who worked on Iron Man because Iron Man happened before Marvel really locked down people for you work for the company. So there were a lot more like sort of independent contractors who worked on Iron Man. So they they aren't like under the thumb of Marvel in any way. And those people are just sort of like so thrilled and so proud to talk about this incredible film they made. So we talked to so many Iron Man people, all these like crafts people. And that was just that is the one that I really feel like we got the most comprehensive making of the movie sort of interview experience. Now, the MCU famously does not have an under 90 minute movie in their roster. You've probably experienced this from the multiple rewatches. Yes. I'm with you. Can I just say, like, the premise of your podcast, your Imagine Film Festival, is so important to me because my note almost for almost anything I watch is this should be shorter. This should be tighter. I'm with you. I'm I'm with your cause. I support you in this wholeheartedly. Always good to meet a fellow uh, a fellow member of the club. Uh, <laughs> there, I do think like maybe one day someone could make a superhero film under ninety minutes. I feel like at the moment nobody's done it because nobody else has done it, and we just need one person to be like, okay, my whatever film is gonna be. 88 minutes long it's funny because i was when you you sent me this like beautiful curated letterboxed collection of like possible films and then uh i could go through and check to see if anyone had picked it and because we were going to talk about the book i was like oh i should find something superhero related not only are the superhero related films very thin on the ground but like all of our pals at the Empire Magazine already like snapped up all the like basically animated uh, superhero films that you had on there, like Mask of the Phantasm, which is a great, great Batman story that is under ninety minutes. So it's like in the animated realm, they have they have come through. Not on all, of course, like across the Spider Verse into Spider Verse, those are longer than ninety minutes. But I was just like, oh, there some exist. Oh, they've all been snapped up by people who got here before me. Okay, but it, I I am very satisfied uh, with what was left for me uh, very very pleased that it's still here well on that note let's uh let's get into our i guess our feature presentation what uh what film did you pick for us uh for the podcast today joanna written by joe cornish directed by joe cornish an iconic entry into uk cinema it is attack the block i can't believe that none of your uk guests uh like picked i can't believe the american picked attack the block Bonfire Night, South London, Sam, brackets Jodie Whittaker, St. Trinian's, Venus, <laughs> is robbed by a gang of hooded youths. Suddenly, a flaming meteor crash lands close by. Sam makes her escape, but the gang are attacked by a small, vicious alien. They killed a ghoulish invader, but their triumph is short-lived. More aliens are invading, and they're bigger, stronger, and out for blood. The gang's only chance for survival is to take refuge within the concrete walls of their housing block. Teaming up with Sam and local drug dealer Ron, brackets Nick Frost, Shaun of the Dead, they realise it's time to step up and be heroes. 
Uh, there we go. So, yeah, so we mentioned Jodie Whittaker, one of the lead actors in the film, uh, who plays Sam, before Doctor Who was on her CV. <laughs> and then Nick Frost, who has a very small, I would say, cameo in the movie, is sort yeah. of the second highest build of course. Uh, here. Uh, but famously, this is the breakout uh, film of John Boyega, um, who really shines in this film and um, has had such a great career uh, since. But it's such a shame he's not his name is not on the box anywhere. That's bizarre. I mean, I, I know I know why, as you say, but I just think that's it's so much his movie that it is, you know, you could at least say like introducing, you know, a, you know, a stunning debut from John Boyega or something like that. But, um, and I love that Jodie Whittaker's credit as St. Trinian's a truly like there's a, you know, I consider myself hopefully not in the grotesque way, like a, a bit of an Anglophile. I love, uh, you know, I love your film. I love your television. Um, St. Trinian's is such a, a thing that I don't understand. I don't understand it, and I'm trying to understand this phenomenon uh, because so many people I like have been involved in it, but I don't. Yeah, I remember being in London around when, like, I don't know, because there's, like, a number of the films, right, and around when one of the sequels, and it was, like, on all the buses, and I was like, literally, what is this? What is St. Trinian's? Anyway, uh, Jodie Whittaker, a broad church in Doctor Who fame, uh, is, is, <laughs> is here. <laughs> I mean, there's so much to talk about the movie. Maybe, maybe the first thing to do is just to talk about our first watches of the of, of the film. Did you see this film in in cinemas when it was first released? I did. I saw it at uh, it was at the South by Southwest Film Festival, um, and it is like it's sort of a perfect South by film for your listeners who don't know. I mean, not that they've never heard of South by, but like if you've never been South by in Austin, Texas, does such a good job highlighting these like great genre films that otherwise might not feel like they're highbrow enough perhaps to be at a film festival. But South by treats genre film as valuable as any other uh, film. And I love that for the festival. That and Fantastic Fest, which also takes place in Austin, are two incredible venues for these debuts. And, uh, you know, Joe. Joe Cornish was there uh, and, and it was just like one of those things where we all came out and we're like, this is just going to be the biggest film of all time. And then it just simply was not. But that was the vibe in Austin, Texas when it when it debuted at South by. We just like really thought it was going to be incredible. How about you? Where were you when you saw Attack the Block first time? I was so excited for this film. I don't know if they ever had any like presence in the US, but Joe Cornish was in a, a comedy group called Adam and Joe. Yeah. Um, who had Adam a TV Buxton. show. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was like a big Joe Cornish fan off the back of that show, and he did podcasts and radio work since, but no sort of film and TV. And on his radio show, he started to say, like, oh, I'm I'm writing a script. And so for a couple of years, like Joe Cornish's mysterious script was a character on their show. Like I had a meeting with a big film company today, um, doing this and doing this. So, so I was like so eager to go to the very first screening I possibly could, and I was luckily working in cinema at the time. And I, I sort of bit the distributor's hand off to go to uh, the, the very first like <laughs> exhibition preview they did. Ooh, nice. um, so I, I, I guess it wasn't like a public vibe, but um, I did see the film a second time when the cinema I worked at in Brixton um, hosted the UK premiere for the film. I think it was really important for Joe and the cast to do a premiere at a cinema that's relevant to the location of the movie in South London. And uh, and yeah, we had all the boys from the cast. We had Jodie Whittaker, uh, Nick Frost, like everybody was there, Joe Cornish, and they did a big screening, which is unusual because normally premieres in London are in Leicester Square. You've probably seen all the red carpet photos and this was unusual. Okay, they're doing it in South London. That's kind of cool. Uh, so I got to sort of go to the UK premiere um, you know, with my work hat on, but it was so nice to, to be there. And they did the after party in the cinema bar, which is very tiny, not very swanky, but... Uh, 
that you know like a badge of honor i think for the movie i love that and you could be like oh yeah i was at a party with the john Boyega and jenny whitaker um i think that i rem- what i my memory uh and before we started recording i was just looking at the posters to try to confirm if this is true a big push in because we did not have the Adam and Joe show or Joe Cornish's legacy to sort of buoy the film. The fact that Edgar Wright is an EP on the film was like a huge promotional angle that they took in the U S you know, so on the posters, it says like from the producers of Shaun of the dead, you know, or it was going around. It's not an, it's a Joe Cornish film. It's not an Edgar Wright film, but like it was sort of like, Oh, this is an Edgar Wright ish film he kind of helped make it a little you know and and um that that i remember so like people who you know if you love Shaun of the dead if you love hot fuzz you'll love attack the block that was a big sort of uh, these films hit in the u.s maybe this one will too and it didn't work the way that they hoped to but it was in it, it is interesting because i have always thought about not just because nick frost is here uh not just because i'm a huge spaced fan but like um I have always thought of this film in relation to the Cornetto trilogy. And I do think it has some interesting overlap uh, while also being its very own specific thing. Taking that genre, you know, typically seen in US and Hollywood films and, and transporting it to, to a London setting, you know, it's, it's a really good comp uh, there. And it does feel like the, I don't know, like a cousin maybe of the Cornetto trilogy. Right. I think there's something like what Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz and World's End do so well is this thing we talk about all the time uh, about genre storytelling on the podcast that I do, this concept of like a place worth defending, a thing worth protecting, you know, and and Edgar does such a good job of establishing that in, in his films. And here you have what I love about this is you have the block, which is there's a number of times in the film where people are openly criticizing, you know, these these uh, council estates, um, you know, and and the boys will occasionally like defend it. And they're like, what do you mean a place like this? Like, what are you talking about? But I think what's so clearly established right at the beginning of the film that I love is the thing worth defending are are these like these boys and their family there that they've created and their their gang and like what is so brilliant about this film and and Joe Cornish has talked about this a million times that it was inspired by his own experience being mugged by a group of boys in South London and how uh, they looked so cinematic to him and how he talked to them and talked to the, you know, the boys that he cast in the film to get, to try to like nail down a very specific place, a very specific language, a very specific, um, the specificity of their community, of the location and of the connection and warmth and protection and all of that. That's part of their found family. That is this gang and this gang that is in almost every other film considered, uh, the threat, you know, and they are the heroes and they are the thing worth defending, um, which is sort of the the larger evolutionary point of the film is what makes it so brilliant and so special. And, uh, you know, you care about you, you. It opens with them committing an act of violence on one of the other film's heroes and you still care about them all the way through. Doesn't it's not hard to root for them. They are so winning and you and you get these little mentions at the beginning and then throughout of like the way in which 
they're embattled and the way in which they're constantly arrested for doing nothing and all this sort of stuff. And I just think it's, uh, you know, obviously there's a lot of social commentary baked into it. But more importantly, from a storytelling point of view, you have a community that is so easy to root for and something you so want to be defended from this alien invasion which i think is just like a brilliant thing they do and like so the specificity of the language or even like the specificity of the of the things that they're using to defend themselves be it you know a baseball bat or what have you or when jody whitaker like whips out her acoustic guitar to defend herself or one of the girls is using like an ice skate like that's so edgar wright coded right like a cricket bat in shot on the dead like it's just sort of like we're using what we have we're just people and we live here and this is the closest thing i could grab and used to defend myself. I just think it's all of that stuff is so brilliant. I think the writing in this film is so good and, and that is Joe's credit, but also how Joe works with the cast and making sure that the um the actors kind of fed into their characters' lines and you know he he did so much research uh talking to kids, you know, whilst making this film and making sure they didn't sound like forty year old men. Right. You know <laughs> and, and there's so many like things that have really stuck with me uh, um as well. And it was such a joy to like when rewatching the film and pick out certain lines, you know, and sometimes they're quite sort of they do sound like they are children. Like, you've got a potty mouth and, uh, you know, that's an alien bruv, like dropping those sort of things in. One that really stuck with me on this rewatch was uh, they, they refer to the aliens as golems and they say it's raining yeah, golems. Yeah, it's raining golems. <laughs> Uh, which uh, I don't know what I'd ever stuck with me before as a huge Lord of Rings fan, but it was nice to discover that line tucked away in there. And it makes total sense in 2011. These kids would probably say something like of that. Of course, yeah. <laughs> I had to double check the date. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They would know Lord of the Rings. Um, yeah, it's Raining Golems is a great one. And then just some of the visuals of like, like all the kids are so Amblin entertainment coded so spielberg kids on bikes coded despite against again the fact that you meet them mugging someone at knife point um and i love that like blend of innocence and whatever else they feel like they have to do to survive in this area and like characters on the verge of losing their innocence is such an interesting part of the story like the fact that John Boyega's character Moses is on, like, has this whole uh, speech, you know, all, all these regrets that he talks about, all the sense of responsibility he feels like he is responsible for this attack on his home, for his friends dying because of decisions he's made. You know, someone literally says, like, decisions have con actions have consequences. It's something someone shouts at some point, and you're like, almost, is that too on the nose? That's no, it's fine. It, they're kids and that is constantly they're kids they're scared kids I, I just think that that's really important and then what's even more brilliant the other layer is they're all on on the edge of of something of of turning a corner that they can't turn back from and then there's an there are kids that are even younger than them that they are trying to protect and like preserve the innocence of of like telling um telling them to like go home and do your homework, lock the door, watch Naruto, like don't get involved, you know? It's like, I wish I had st stayed home and played FIFA. I didn't. So you stay home and watch Naruto and preserve your innocence and don't get involved in this. I mean, those kids uh, don't stay home and play Naruto. They do get involved. But um, that's, you know, these are kids. They are, these are kids, scared kids in peril. They Some of them die. 
you know, uh, you mentioned spoilers before. Uh, does the dog die dot com? Yes, the dog dies like right away. There are real consequences here. This isn't like a fake threat, but um, that endeavor to protect the innocence of the kids younger than them and then protect their own innocence. Like they're just kids and there's like there's a drug dealer who is looking to turn them into something more hardened than perhaps their their true nature really wants to be and that's you know and then this this otherworldly thing intervenes and you know you said you talk about the ending like it might be too soon to talk about the ending but i'll just do it out of order and say the moment that the film the film is so good throughout and then the last shot of john boyega as moses who has not smiled the whole movie smiling as people are chanting his name, even as he has been locked up and placed in a police car. Like that's next level, a uh, cinematic moment. He looks so boyish when he does it. And you're like, this is a, this is a kid. And this is who he wants to and should be, which is the hero of his, of his block, defending his city, defending the earth. It's brilliant. Absolutely. Get out the block as fast as you can. You hear me? Good luck, Moses. Later. Moses versus the monsters. Kill them. Kill all them things. Allow it. The runtime is important here. Like I think the film covers so much ground emotionally uh, with the characters, and there are so many sort of character arcs happening and inter interweaving. It does it in eighty-eight minutes. Actually, I mean less because some of that is, a, is credits, but it, it does it in such a tight runtime. Like this is precision engineered, and and it, it all works when you get to that final scene uh, with John Boyega in in the police truck, and you know, like you're just rooting for him. And of course, you know, the crowd goes wild in the cinema when you get to the end because you've been on this journey and you are on Moses's side. Um, because of the upcoming Doctor Who uh, 60th anniversary specials, my House of Our co-host Mallory Rubin and I have been doing this sort of like year-long rewatch of Doctor Who starting in the new Who era with Eccleston, but still it's a lot to get through. So we've been sort of like slowly watching, stopping and doing an episode sort of for every Doctor that we get to. We're in the Matt Smith era right now, so we're running out of time to get through Capaldi and Whitaker, but we will. But... My point being, uh, watching this movie, I was like, oh, this feels like a really good Doctor Who two-parter. And that's about as long as it is, you know, and um, shorter even. And something that Doctor Who, at least at its best, I would say particularly in the sort of Tenet Davies era, is lands you in a, in a place with a bunch of people you've never met before. And you watch these people who are ordinary people turn into heroes over the course of some sort of threat, otherworldly threat or invasion. And I'm like, this is a perfect Doctor Who two-parter. Uh, Joe Cornish. Has Joe Cornish done any Doctor Who? I don't think so. Joe Cornish. Like, this, no. this is what's baffling about Joe Cornish is this is such an incredible debut again I know it it flopped big time in the US it's an incredible debut and then he's done some some things since but he's not had the career that I expected him to have post attack the block uh obviously he worked on Tintin with Edgar Wright again obviously uh Lockwood and Company or was it the boy who would be king like I've, you know every time Joe Cornish's name is on something I will tune in because I am interested because of Attack the Block. Um, he hasn't quite touched on what he got here, but I also just don't know that he's had 
the opportunity that I think he deserves to um, to really flex what he can do. And I I think he'd be killer as a guest writer on a Doctor Who season, right? Don't you think? I don't know if you're a Doctor Who fan or, or if I'm like... Oh my God, I love Doctor Who. Yeah. I love Doctor Who so much. Uh, <laughs> I grew up watching the, like, repeats. I was going to say, it's legally required, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, I love Doctor <laughs> Who and you definitely get that Doctor Who vibe uh, with this, especially that, like, Russell T. Davis, like, gritty new Who vibe. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. With Attack the Vlog. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, like, I think that they do such a good job. This is so crucial, um... I think to a tightly plotted 80-ish minute adventure is that we get that sense of place, uh, the layout of where we are locked down. And so we're in a mostly in this high one high rise, uh, very, you know, diehard Nakatomi Plaza sort of uh, feeling. And I know it's not it's sort of an amalgamation of a bunch of different places. It's not it's not one real uh, council estate or anything that they're shooting on. But I, I mean, you know exactly. you and, and when it does that Edgar Wright thing at the beginning where like you see a lot of stuff and then it like comes back around, you know what I mean? So like uh, Luke Treadway's character. Uh, I love I love whenever I see a, a Treadway twin. Uh, I'm like trying to decide whether it's Harry or Luke. But his character, Bruce, who is like such a great like hapless posh white guy like uh, caught up in all this action and joe cornish is like that's me that's my author insert character and you're like you're telling yourself what i love that for you joe cornish but um you know when you see him at the beginning uh and he's like scared he's like listening to you know like hardcore music but whenever the when the boys rock up he's like so scared of them and won't get in an elevator with them um and then, you know, he's like, oh, I'll take another one. And then later, you know, when when our drug dealer steps out of this blood-soaked elevator and he's like, best take another one or something like that. You know, that that's such an Edgar Wright, let's loop back around to sort of the exact same thing, only this time there's, like, bodies everywhere or whatever. They, you know, this will come back to you. So I think he does such a good job at the beginning of establishing place and character and all these things that will come back, be it like the little the little boys or the girls that they meet or, you know, all this sort of stuff. And it's just going to like, OK, you're going to meet them under cheerier circumstances and then you're going to meet them again when things are really tough. And um, it all and then it all feels so tight and intentional and clever um, and inevitable because he set it all up that way. You know what I mean? Absolutely, He's, he really sort of like sets out the the, the, the plan for the game. Every, you meet everybody in the first fifteen twenty minutes, even the alien, which is such a, a like a bold move in storytelling. You know, often with a, if there's a monster, you sort of like hear about it, but you don't see it visually. But I love that we see an alien, and we are then expecting like the characters to know what the aliens look like going forward. When the boys are you know getting quite excited to face off against a few more aliens yeah um and then we're all surprised when we finally see the you know the the the, the grown-up version of the aliens the big the big creatures and uh and actually I, I think that sort of catches us all unawares and it makes them even more scary because like the characters we've never seen these things before yeah and i mean a uh, perfect you almost i mean again i don't think that joe cornish has had the all the opportunities that i think he deserves to show what he can do but sometimes when a like if you think of another filmmaker, like I would say Edgar Wright or some other filmmakers where you watch their earliest stuff when they had such a low budget and you just admire the creativity that is required to shoot something on such a low budget. So there's so much creativity that goes into this, be it like 
smoke bombs going off so you can barely see anything or the creature design itself which is quite simple it's like gorilla suits with glowing teeth but like so scary and menacing um and you just admire how much he worked with what he had and 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 made it into such a compelling uh taut tight story what it reminds me in its like intentional structure and quick pace and real people in a very specific place caught up in a monster story. It reminds me of one of my favorite films of all time, which is Tremors. I think both of them are just so like expertly constructed as like monster movies um, where there isn't it's puppetry. It's like no CGI involved. Just like we got good old fashioned puppets. If you get a good sound design on them and sort of hide the ball enough, they are very scary. And these like these very Muppety glow in the dark, uh, you know, creatures who I believe. And I, I want, I want someday I want to do either like an article or a podcast about all the creatures in cinema that are based on people's cats, because we were just talking about this with Ahsoka, uh, Dave Filoni has based a bunch of things on his cats, and uh, Joe Cornish has said that the that the aliens are based on his cat, which he was like is was blacker than black. It looked like a void, and so like this is this is why the the uh, you know the adult furry uh, aliens look like this, and I just love that. Brilliant, wonderful. The monsters do feel a little bit Doctor Who-y and, and like classic sci-fi as well. Um... Like John Wyndham gets a, a credit in the film. One of the blocks is called Wyndham House. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. Day of the Triffids, that sort of stuff. And and you do sort of see like you know it's these like very tangible, uh, you know, sort of creatures that you can bring to life in a really effective way on a on a low budget. And I think they're kind of iconic creatures. They don't in the marketing, of course, you don't sort of spoil it uh, by putting the creature on the front. But there was one version of the disc in the UK which was a glow in the dark, like a black uh, glow in the dark version, and it was like attack the block. And when you took it into a when it got dark, then the teeth would sort of be framing the Ooh. disc. And I sort of like that they sort of I like teased it. that. And it's kind of iconic and like low-key iconic with, you know, kind of sci-fi nerds. <laughs> no, I love it. That would be a really fun cosplay if someone wanted to cosplay as the as the uh, glow-in-the-dark teeth and monsters. And what I think is like really interesting, there's this concept we like to talk about a lot in genre storytelling uh, that we stole from Station Eleven, a great book and a great a TV series that I absolutely love this idea of, of to the monsters where the monsters and like there are so many layers of that in this movie be it like there's the drug dealers there's the police there's the kids you know like who is the monster here who's the real monster at play you know Jodie Whittaker's character says at the beginning like yeah they're monsters right and then she about the kids and then she sort of goes on this evolution of, of discovering that that's not who or all they are but what I think is so interesting is that these aliens their motivation isn't necessarily like, let's take over the planet, let's kill everyone or whatever. Like they're trying to find like the the young female that these boys killed at the beginning of the movie. So like, I mean, yes, that that creature attacked them. You know what I mean? Like it's not. Um, but there is this added layer. I mean, like I know there's this big triumphant like he blew them all up and is like literally dangling from the flag at the end of the movie. It's like, you know, it's if it were America, it would be in America, like sort of, yeah, sort of moment. Um, but like, I love that the alien motivation is like to protect their own, to find their young, to find their like, you know, this wounded or actually dead uh, female is just like, you're like, should you be blowing them up? <laughs> Do they just want like... 
their wounded, uh, you know, fallen comrade. I don't, uh, you know, it, that's just, like an interesting layer to all of this. Plus, it just looks ama- like this, the sequence where Boyega, where Moses, who decides to play the hero, straps the corpse of the of the alien they've killed at the beginning of the movie, who looks a lot like a xenomorph, like Yoda combination, essentially, to his back, has the sword out, and is just like running through in slow-mo as these creatures are following him. It's just iconic looking cinema. And I remember when he was when Boyega was cast in The Force Awakens, those of us who loved Attack the Block were like, Moses is going to be a Jedi. He wasn't a Jedi. But we were like, Moses is going to be a Jedi. Oh, my God. This is so cool. And then, like, I just remember the images of him with the sword out, running with the with the alien on his back. Like, that became the header of, like, all these articles about who is John, John Boyega, why you should be excited that he's going to be in a Star Wars. All of this stuff is really, really funny. Check it. Reginald Gavin survived. Don't answer those names no more. It's props and mayhem. Damn, you saw the aliens. They ran past us. Straight. We got tools. <laughs> <laughs> now what's wrong with you, man? That's not real, is it? Jesus, he looks about six. I'm nine and a half. I ain't dying in a toy, Gavin. Give me that. Gavin. Go home, lock your door, do your homework, watch Naruto. Stay inside tonight, get me? What's your sense as like a, as as someone who is much more educated than I am in, in UK cinema? Like, what's your sense of the lasting impact of something like Attack the Block? Like, what is what is it inspired? How did it, did it change anything? How impactful was it? I remember at the time it came out, we had like a younger family member who's like, this is the best film ever. Like it definitely spoke to a generation of, you know, people who were playing FIFA, watching Naruto, going, discovering sci-fi cinema for the first time, maybe probably, you know, watching Doctor Who on TV, but actually going to the cinema and seeing a more of a grown up in the UK, it's 15 rated, uh, you know, so kind of like, you know, it's kind uh-huh. of cool to go and watch the 15 movie. There's yeah. some violence in here. Um, so I think it sort of had that like ripple at the time, but, but now it is very much a cult classic and it, I think it's a real shame it's not more well-known we've just gone past the 10-year anniversary and and I think you know with my cinema hat on we heard rumblings that there was going to be a big 10th anniversary re-release um obviously the pandemic did not help but cinemas did open towards the end of 2021 no re-release happened like I, I feel like the distributor had a real moment there to celebrate uh, this film and you know, probably lots of things were discussed or, or whatever that we're not privy to but I do think it's a shame they didn't capitalize on that because I think now especially with John Boyega who yet again is not on the DVD at all <laughs> you know they could reissue the disc yeah. put John Boyega on the cover you know like get a cast reunion going now that Jodie Whittaker has finished Doctor Who and John Boyega's finished Star Wars you know they've gone on a journey themselves in this time Joe's made another film and a TV show and stuff so I, again I think a little bit like how unfairly this film was maybe treated at the box office i think its legacy is a little bit unfairly treated you know like there should be more celebration around this film there was a not like an official re-release but um the san francisco alamo draft house did do a screening of attack the block um a couple i don't know if it was 2021 it might have been pre-pandemic i'm trying to remember but um the uh the theater was like it wasn't 
It was in their big theater at the at the Draft House in San Francisco. It wasn't like full full, but it's pretty full for like a weeknight, and of like you know a re-release of a of a nearly ten year old I think at that point movie. Um, and I I went with a friend of mine who was a big fan, and then like two friends. Uh, other friends who were like and one of whom who hadn't seen it and when the movie ended she turned to me she's like why isn't this like the most famous movie in the world i was like i don't know it's so good um but i uh i don't know if this is how much this is true or still happening but weren't there rumblings that cornish is going to make a a sequel right and direct a, a sequel to attack the block he has said on on the record like he's written a script and he's working with john boyega to produce and star in it and john boyega's feeding into the script and all of this stuff was happening um john joe cornish is on uh, another great podcast called script apart which is about your first draft screenplays and in that interview about attack the block um he does say like he's currently you know, writing this this project um so hopefully it happens Ooh, you know okay. but uh but i i don't know like maybe with john boyega scheduling is like the big thing now but but joe's really good series on netflix lockwood and co was sadly cancelled so joe feels like he's free get joe get joe to make attack the block too guys come on attack the block more again attack it or the block uh yeah i, I yeah, would what's the fun title for that attack the blocks maybe Ooh, maybe attack like the block it's like yes. aliens situation yes. <laughs> Ooh, i love it attack the blocks yeah i mean boyega would be so good one of my favorite pieces of trivia that i think about all the time is that john boyega i think was either in the running for or first choice for kingsman and like as much as I love Taron Edgerton, which I do, I love him. Like when you think about Attack the Block and you think about John Boyega as Eggsy, you're just sort of like, yeah, <laughs> like that character doing like parkour down his like his own council state, stuff like that. You're like, that's that's Moses essentially, like is what that is. So like thinking of a Boyega sort of yes anding his Attack the Block work and that uh film is is so delightful to me but i think he was busy making something called force awakens so he could not do it and i love taryn so like taryn's good in it but you know it's just like uh i think about i think about that what if version of kingsman all the time where that's something that boyega does uh, instead of star wars i don't think i don't think uh well i don't know boyega's got some mixed feelings on his uh, star wars experience for sure but i think that um yeah i just wish more people would watch this great movie uh, in the States, I should say, it's streaming for free on a lot of like our major streaming platforms. I don't know what its available is, availability is in the UK, but uh, here in America, if you're listening, you can watch it. You can watch Attack the Block right now on your lunch break. Basically, you could knock it out, essentially. So, you know, <laughs> I recommend. It's definitely, definitely worth seeking out. And like there are so many... There's so many good performances, you know, so like these, you know, this has been a real sort of like training ground, I think, for a lot of, you know, now prominent and probably growing even more prominent uh, British actors uh, here. And it just holds up. I think it's kind of timeless and I do think it gets better with age. I understood more of the sci-fi references this time around. I sort of appreciated more of the camera work. Like it's got this cinematic, you know, cinemascope sort of uh, picture quality. You've got some amazing, like really dramatic lighting, which is generated from the spotlights and the streetlights yeah, outside yeah. of the block. Uh, you know, and it's uh, it, it does so much with so little. Um, and it is a real feat of like filmmaking. 
the way I was reading some like of the contemporaneous reviews just to like remind myself of like what what critics thought of it at the time. And a lot of them mentioned the way that the tower itself is shot. Um, like when you first see it sort of angled up from below and those bright lights around the top of it almost make it look like the spaceship. Like there is no spaceship in this movie that, you know, the aliens are like shooting stars falling to Earth. Um, so then the like then the estate tower becomes the like spaceship l- looking building. And that's so brilliant. <laughs> There's so many little details that make it so brilliant. And again, I mean, like to the point of the whole podcast, it's so quick that you can just rewatch it all the time. Anytime you just throw it on and just have like an absolute blast. And it's an era of filmmaking that I love so much that, like you know, it's only like t- about, as you say, about 10 years ago, but the, the early, like the first decade of the aughts uh, into, into, you know, is, is when all those boys who grew up on Star Wars and Jaws and the Spielberg stuff come into their own directorial power. And so you see all these, you know, exemplified, I think, most popularly by the Netflix series Stranger Things. But it, there's nostalgia, but there's just like so much like playfulness and love for these genre movies that they grew up on. So like in their best version of themselves, be it Edgar Wright or Joe Cornish or like the better stuff that J.J. Abrams has done or something like that, where you have these like fanboys, for lack of a better word, who just like then take all of their love for all these like movies that they watched and cram them into, you know, their own version. And um, this is just like, I think, one of the most elegant examples of that. There's like more reference per frame in an Edgar Wright movie uh, and more overt references. Um, but, But this is just has this just like low level thrum of like a love for genre storytelling, which is something that I love, something that you should like treat as worthy of a beautiful treatment like Attack the Block as it is. So, yeah. Thank you so much, uh, Joanna, for selecting Attack the Block. You know, big two big fans here, clearly, and and hopefully more people will go and and check the film out. Eighty eight minutes long, guys. It's it's fantastic. Um, <laughs> what we like to do, ask at the end is if I could give you a print of this movie and you know a, a blank check to hire a venue and and maybe you know make your own pop up theater or, or rent an existing theater. Uh, where would you like to screen your ideal uh, Attack the Block event? Okay, so if I'm being like. If, if we're being like real, it should be in South London, but I, I'll go local just because I feel like we should all support our local cinemas. So in the Bay Area, we're in the California Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, where I'm from, um, I have always wanted to put on a screening at the Castro Theater, which is this great sort of uh, movie palace-esque theater in San Francisco's Castro District. I've seen some wonderful sort of, they do great film festivals there, wonderful rep screenings there. One of the fun things about the Castro Theater, um, actually, I haven't been in a little minute, so I don't know if they still do this. I hope they do. But they have an organ that comes up from like below ground and like someone, this guy plays on the organ and then it goes back down. That's sort of like a pre-show thing. It's a very like uh, American baseball uh, sort of vibes. And um, 
So to have <laughs> to have on the organ like play, I don't know, some of the songs from Attack the Block that would sound like incredible on an organ that came out of the floor at the Castor Theater. And then as you say, and then I would want to have like an after screening in conversation with Joe Cornish, John Boyega and Jodie Whittaker and to talk about the film and their like sci-fi legacies since and um, and then they and then they all get up on stage and they'll be like, and we are officially making Attack the Block 2 and it will be coming in 2023. And, uh, you, you know, or surprise, we finished the film and we're going to show it to you right now. And it's a double feature. Something really wild like that would be oh really God. fun. Yeah. yeah, that would be great. No, let's do that. Well, we will make sure that the funding for the screening also covers the production of Attack the Blocks. And Perfect. we will just do a surprise double, double feature yes. at the Castro. Yeah. Uh, that would be so good. And the caveat, I guess, if that way I can I can ensure that Joe makes Attack the Block 2 under 90 minutes because it would be such a shame if there's a sequel, which is like two and a half hours. <laughs> oh, yeah. That would be bad. Please keep it low, but please keep it, please keep it puppets and like sparely budgeted and under two hours. That's that's our only demand. So under ninety minutes, as he's. These are the funding, you know, the, the funding rules. Yeah, yeah. Keep, it, keep it short. Keep it. <laughs> yeah. Keep it in the spirit of the first one. That would be so good. I do love those uh, screenings, and it does happen sometimes with like sci-fi sequels, like Star Wars sequels and and Star Trek sequels, where you know you get people in for an anniversary screening of something, and surprise, it's the new movie, and people just go absolutely crazy. Yeah. Speaking speaking of South by, they've done that at South by a couple times where they're just sort of like there's there'll be like a um, a midnight screening of something and you think you're going to see something in rep and then it's just like oops it's the new fast and furious movie here you go you're like hell yeah so yeah if you uh, were, were hosting a screening yourself and, and you could choose the the menu for the movie theater you know what we might be selling on the concession stand what's your favorite cinema treats to sort of eat and drink it has to be popcorn but like you can do really fun flavors um, on the popcorn and like so I don't know if if uh, with attack the block oh I don't have anything clever off the top of my head but I do really love it when um they like spy you know like have you ever had elote corn that's like a it's like street know, corn no. street corn it has like um uh you know spices on it and 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 uh, like Mexican cheese on it and stuff like that so like at at the Alamo Draft House, which is where I watch a lot of um, movies that I go see in San Francisco, um, they'll do like elote popcorn or hurricane popcorn, which is like Hawaiian flavor, like just like a really fun flavored popcorn. And then like some sort of fun drink that maybe glows green in the dark for Attack the Block, right? So you can have like the glowy green uh, teeth. Uh, yeah. Oh, that would be so good. The lights go down, the film starts, and everybody's drinks start to glow. Glowing green, <laughs> yeah. Call it like the alien bite or something like that, you know? Um, I, the block bite, something like that. That's incredible. That's incredible drink and snack curating. Um, yes, would love to make that happen. That would be that would be good fun. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, there we have it. We've got an amazing screening of Attack the Block in our, in our festival. Um, it's going to be at the Castro, and we're going to surprise you with the sequel to the movie, and we're going to serve you glowing drinks. I think I've really crushed the assignment here i i hope you agree <laughs> uh some of the best answers we've had on the show um, that's incredible um <laughs> 
so yeah i think that that sort of brings us to the end but thank you so much for talking to us joe thank you for sending me this copy of your amazing new book uh, mcu the reign of marvel studios as well um no under 90 minute films in the book but everything else about it is so good thank you <laughs> <laughs> and you can't read it in under 90 minutes but it won't take you that long to read uh so yeah so nice to to talk joe and, and thank you very much thank you for having me thank you <laughs> Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or if you've got a mo, share an episode with your friends. Every recommendation helps. You can contact us on our website, 90minfilmfest.com, and on Twitter and Instagram, at 90minfilmfest. The podcast is produced by me, Sam Clements, and Louise Owen. It's edited by Louise Owen, with sound mixing and additional editing by Luke Smith. Our music is by Martin Ostwick, and our artwork is by Sam Gilby. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. We're a proud member of the Stripped Media Network. 